Micah chapter 4, the mountain of the Lord. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and people, peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jer Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of, the, of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Why do you now cry out aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break into pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. This is the word of God. We are continuing in our series, God of Justice, from the book of Micah. I'm going to say a prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for communion. Thank you for your word. Please open our hearts to hear what you are speaking to us. Uh, speak deeply to us. May we be moved by your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. A day of justice and peace. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what that could look like, like a, a day of perfect peace and perfect justice. Just, just one day, maybe it's a Tuesday, what would that look like? What would that sound like? Well, all the wars around the world would cease. All the, the prisons and the jails would empty. It would be a boring day on Wall Street. Washington, D.C. would be quiet Hollywood would be closed. All the abortion clinics, instead of offering abortions, would offer care for pregnant moms. 
The homeless would be fed, and the, they'd be clothed, they'd, they'd be able to sleep in a warm bed. Veterans would get the care they need. There'd be no drug overdoses, no drunk driving, no homicides or crime. There'd be no divorces, and even remarriages would, uh, that, uh, marriages that had been broken would be healed. Police officers and protesters, they would share pizzas and stories together. Maybe you personally would call up that broken friendship or relationship from long ago, and it would be just like old times. Maybe you would finally have that healthy relationship with your family or coworkers that you've always been looking for. You'd go to work or you'd go to school and you would do that, that job that truly glorifies God. It would be a day of excellence and a life-giving day to you as well. See, on a day of perfect justice and peace, everyone would be treated respectfully, fairly, and it would be quiet. It would be all quiet, not just on the Western front, but on every front and in every place, in every relationship, justice and peace would reign. I don't know about you, but I want a day of justice and peace. <laughs> I want this. Maybe in your imagination you thought of things that were way better than what I thought of. But I want a day of justice and peace, and will it ever be? Well, The Bible actually tells us here in Micah chapter 4, uh, parallel to Isaiah chapter 2, that one day there will be a day of justice and peace, that God promises us a day of justice and peace, a day that is coming. It'll be here. And now in our God of Justice series, we've been studying the prophet Micah, right? We classify him as a, as a minor prophet in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And I want us to just review what we've been learning so far. So in Micah chapter 1, we learned about the problem of idolatry and injustice. And it was in Israel, it was in Judah, and it's also in us. See, we saw in Micah 1 that the northern kingdom of Israel committed idolatry against God. They worshipped false idols. They, they made these golden calves that they worshipped. And their idolatry was kind of like an infection. It, it spread to the southern half of Israel, the land of Judah, the capital of Jerusalem. And pretty soon they're committing injustices as well and not, not loving the one true God. And so we, we kind of talked about why are we studying this book so that we would also recognize and repent of our idols and our injustices and experience renewed hope. In Micah chapter 2, we talked about the love of money and how that led to unjust treatment of the poor and forsaking the gospel in the community of Israel in Jerusalem. Now, idolatry is just not loving God first, right? It's, it's worshiping anything else besides God. And it Idolatry actually leads to injustice. Injustice is not loving your neighbor well. It's like the opposite of the great commandment. The great commandment is love God and love others. Well, what's idolatry and injustice? Just the opposite of that. And the rich in their setting were, were stealing homes. They are stealing land. And then they were uh, kind of uh, uh, aligning themselves with these prophets who were just like, yeah, this is good. And the prophet Micah is saying, no, these are false prophets. They're prosperity gospel preaching prophets. And so we also as a church were challenged to truly care about injustices in our world because we believe in a just God and we want to reflect his character in our world 
and that we should uh, resolutely and resoundly reject uh, prosperity gospel preaching. Uh, the, The message of the gospel is not about just our best lives now. There's so much more to it than that. Micah chapter 3, it's about unjust power and how unjust power takes advantage of others. But then we looked at Micah and we saw a picture of just power and gospel power that, that uh, does what's best for others and is willing to even lay down its life for others. And at the end of Micah chapter 3, although there are some hopeful parts in the passages. Micah talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking truth. At the end, what does he do? He prophesies the destruction of their temple. So this, the temple's located in southern Judah in the capital of Jerusalem on this kind of temple mount. And in verse 12, it says this. Therefore, because of you, Zion, so that's the, kind of the temple mount, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The Tipple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. This is pretty stiff. This is a pretty stiff punishment for their idolatry and their injustices, but it's well deserved. Have you ever been to like a deserted piece of property or like near my house, there's this, this house that, that uh, people don't live in anymore. There's a for sale sign, but like once a year they have to go through and whack all the trees down because these like bushes and these trees, they just like spring up and begin to grow. I, we didn't really have that problem in Colorado, but in Massachusetts, like the, there's like these weed trees that I've never seen before that just, they, they, they burst forth. And he's saying the temple ground is going to just be like deserted and these trees are going to kind of uh, shoot up. And it's this devastating picture of abandonment and, and loss. And that God's presence, which was supposed to be in the temple, won't be anywhere near them. And now, as we reach chapter 4, we wonder, is there hope? <laughs> Can this ever be undone? And I want you to like, look carefully at verse 1. Look really carefully at verse 1 in chapter 4, because Micah is about to reverse what he said at the end of chapter 3. So Micah 4, verse 1, he says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. The mountain of the temple will be established. So he literally just said the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. And now he's saying it's going to be established. There is hope. There is restoration. There is renewal coming. It's going to be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And peoples will stream to it. Micah is contradicting himself in some ways. Right? The temple's still going to be destroyed. But then God's going to come and do something even greater. And all peoples will come to it. What does that mean? It's all the nations, right? This is one of those great passages that talks about salvation, about God's plan being not just for the people of Israel, but for all peoples, all around the world, all nations. They're going to come, they're going to flow, the the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And we see in the following three verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, that that God is going, there's going to be so many benefits for this, that there's going to be justice and peace, a part of this last day that is going to pervade the whole world. So verse 2 says, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
So Zion is kind of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. It's that whole kind of area. And God is saying that with this new temple that God is going to establish, there will be justice, there will be peace, there will be that message, and it will be for the Israelites, it will be for the whole world. God's going to teach the people uh, his laws. He's going to teach people his ways. And we really see the justice and the peace mapped out in verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In the last days, the nations will come to this temple. There will be peace. There will be no more war. They will turn weapons of death and violence into weapons of life and vitality. And this is like the most important part of Micah. It falls near the center of the book. Uh, It is paralleling. It's reflecting. Perhaps it's quoting Isaiah chapter 2. And so this is one of the main themes of the Bible, This is one of the main promises uh, of the gospel, of the message of salvation that's being preached to the Old Testament people, to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people. So God promises that a day of justice and peace is coming. But the question is, did they ever experience it? Did Judah ever have this day? Because their temple was destroyed, right? In 586 B.C., their temple was wiped out. The Babylonians destroyed it. They rebuilt it. 536, but then it was destroyed again, (laughs) 70 AD, right? Jesus prophesied that. And so is that day of justice and peace here? Has it come? Well, the day is here, just not all the way. So the last days, what does this mean? I think it's the days of the Messiah. Now, Maybe you've never heard this word, you don't hear it very often, but you actually do hear this word often in Greek, and that's the word Christ. So Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the kind of anointed figure, the kind of the the special king who would come and deliver the people. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, when Jesus is born and goes through his ministry, I believe that he inaugurates the last day. That means he begins the last day. It's like, it's like uh, you know, at the beginning of a race, he, the, the, the starting gun has been shot, fired and the race is off. Maybe you've read about the kingdom of God. Jesus preaches all throughout his ministry about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. Yes, it's here. It's in its, in its kind of infant form, its beginning form, but it's not here all the way. It's not here in its fullness. When will justice and peace be here in its fullness? At the last day, right? The very last day, the second coming of Christ. First coming of Christ, he starts at the second coming, he will complete it. We call this the now, but the not yet, right? The, the last days are here now, but they're not yet here in their fullness. Now, I brought a little visual aid to help explain this. If you, if you don't understand it, uh, it's kind of a complicated topic. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I brought this camera. So maybe some of you know what this is. This is, uh, it's kind of like a Polaroid 
camera, right? Uh, it's an, actually an Instamax uh, camera. I got it for Monica for uh, Christmas. And I thought, you know, what a great opportunity. You guys look amazing. You're in your, your Saturday evening best. I think I should try to take a little picture of you. So uh, we're going to have uh, the first, uh, not annual, just the first, perhaps the last uh, Insta picture of a Cornerstone congregation here. I, I checked this out. I really have to back up. Better lean in. Uh, See if we can get this in. Yeah, you gotta really lean in. Here we go. Three. John, you better lean in a little bit. Okay, so I took the picture. Now, if you were to look at this picture, maybe you can see, you can't see anything, right? The picture is not here yet. I've taken the picture, right? Uh, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not here yet. Now, if you watch this, in about 90 seconds, it will be fully developed, right? And so every moment that you look at it, things begin to, to appear. I, this will probably be a huge distraction for my sermon, but I'm going to uh, pass this down, and you can pass it around if you want. As you look at it, try not to touch the, the center part. It'll slowly appear. And so that's kind of what the kingdom of God is like. It, it slowly begins to appear. Jesus has taken the picture. He has, he has taken the Polaroid. It's here, but we can't quite see it yet. One day soon, it'll be here in its fullness. It'll feel like it was 90 seconds, <laughs> uh, and it'll become clearer and more defined. So we are in the last days. The picture has been taken, and it will soon be here. So that's kind of my, my first sub-point there, that the day is here, just not all the way. My second point is this, that the day comes through Christ and our church, right? So we have this camera that kind of orchestrated the, the taking of this photo. So I want us to understand that in the last days, if Jesus has come, that means he has somehow reestablished the temple. So think about that for a moment. Keep tracking with me. I know that the picture's going around. So Jesus has come. That means somehow the temple has been reestablished on Mount Zion. But how can this be, right? So if you pull up Google Maps and you go to Jerusalem, there's not a temple on the Temple Mount. And so how can the temple be there because Jesus has inaugurated the last days? Well, the answer is Jesus is the temple, right? What is a temple? A temple is a place that houses the presence of God. Can you think of any place that more clearly houses the presence of God than Jesus Christ? <laughs> See, Jesus is God. Jesus is God's presence. And so Jesus is the temple of God. And we see this in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And you can find this in other places, Matthew 12, 6, John 1, 14, Colossians 1, 19. But it's not just Jesus who is the temple. See, if you think about the church, what is the church? It's full of people, right? And people are full of what? The Holy Spirit. That means you and I, we're little temples. If we know Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us, we're the temple of God. 
And we see this in Ephesians 2, verses 21 through 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in us. We're a temple. Christ is the temple because God is, he is God. And that means we're actually spiritually, when we gather, we're like coming to Mount Zion. We're in the presence of Mount Zion right now, right here. Not in its fullness, but in its beginning form. And we actually find this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says this, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion. The author of Hebrews is writing to early Christian believers. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Think about that for a moment. When we come, when we're gathering together as the church, something special is happening. We are singing and praising God in the presence of thousands upon thousands of heavenly angels. We are doing something significant and out of this world here. And so when the church gathers to worship Christ in the last days, not in its fullness, not in its completion, but in real and relevant power, that means things are going to happen, right? And as we look at the rest of this passage, things are happening, right? Spears are being turned into plowshares, uh, into uh, pruning hooks, and swords are being turned into plowshares. Like, war is being transformed into peace. And that means that you and I get to be a part of righting the wrongs in our world, that we get to be be part of beating swords into plowshares, that we get to bring justice into our communities because we have the presence of God. And we're bringing his kingdom, his Zion, his temple into the world, and we're transforming the world. I think there's a, a wonderful like modern example of this, of a church truly being God's presence in a hurting and broken world. And helping to solve the injustices. I wanted to share a story with you. Uh, uh, centers a little bit on an Anglican priest, Dennis Singolini. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, Singolini. Uh, he uh, lived and, and worked in the South African country of Mozambique. And when Mozambique was decolonized in about 1975, uh, a civil war broke out that lasted from 1977 till 1992. That's 15 years. And it was an absolutely terrible civil war. Like, think Rwanda, think like Darfur genocide. It was just awful. Millions of people were abused and murdered in horrible ways. And uh, Dennis, he led a, a church delegation that helped broker the peace between the rebels and the president. And he and another group of Christians really laid the foundation for the peace treaty that took place in 1992. So here are Christians, the church, leading the peace, uh, leading a broken country that's hurt by war into a peace agreement. But it didn't stop there because after the peace agreement, there were still more than 7 million guns hidden all over Mozambique. And these guns, if you're armed, it could easily lead to another civil war. 
And so uh, Dennis and this Christian organization, the churches, they helped start the Tools for Arms or the Swords into Plowshares project. It was inspired by Isaiah 2. And so the, the idea was that if you turned in a gun, you got a shovel. Or if you turned in a machine gun, you got a plow. And one community, they turned in so, like a, such a huge cache of weapons that they actually received a tractor. And this initiative didn't even stop there because they wanted to deal with the economic fallout, right, to, to begin to help people farm and, and work the land. But then there's also an emotional scars from the war. And so they used these confiscated weapons to uh, make beautiful pieces of art, to transform weapons of slaughter into pieces of life. And so I wanted to show you some of the pictures of them. This is called the saxophone. Uh, and it is the, the gentleman here, he is holding an AK-47 and a bazooka that have been made into the shape of a saxophone. I, I would imagine it, it doesn't actually play any music, but maybe it does. Uh, but the, the point is, is that a weapon of war has been turned into a symbol of music and harmony because they're trying to live out Isaiah 2, Micah chapter 4. This second piece is called the throne of weapons, the throne of weapons. The artist who made it used assault rifles to make it. And if you look at the back part of the chair, uh, it's in a shape. Right? The artist actually intentionally made it in the shape of a cross, kind of a gothic-shaped cross uh, on the back of the chair because uh, he wanted to bring the church into this healing process. And this third piece really symbolizes the whole movement that's entirely made out of weapons, out of rifles and other, uh, other arms. Uh, and they made this tree. They made this beautiful tree. This is in the British Museum. The last one's in the British Museum as well. Uh, and it really celebrates the life that this movement has helped create. Over 600,000 weapons were turned in as part of this program. And it was Christians and the church and uh, Dennis that helped lead this movement. This is a beautiful example of what they did in Mozambique. And as a church in Westford, right, there's not a civil war going on here, but we don't need a civil war to be ambassadors of justice and peace to lead that movement in our communities and in our world. I started this sermon series by uh, doing a survey and asking people, what's an injustice our culture commits? So I asked you, the church, uh, what you thought an injustice our culture commits. And one of the big answers was abortion. Now, uh, one way that we can lead the, the charge and help end abortions is by passing laws that protect the lives of the unborn. Uh, and we've done that for a long time. But... One of the kind of the side effects of that sometimes is that we can get caught in the culture wars, right? The culture wars, which are partisan political battles between conservative values and liberal values over things like marriage and family and abortion and separation of church and state. And so we're trying to do something good, but now the label of war is upon us. And we're not trying to bring war, right? We're trying to bring peace and justice. We don't want to hurt people. And so, how can we think about turning our arms into plowshares? How can, we, how can we approach the same issue in a way that promotes both justice and peace? 
that helps care for mothers and babies, that doesn't pit one side against the other. Uh, You should check out ProGrace.org. They have a wonderful video about how we don't want to separate moms on one side and babies on the other side. We really want to care for both. And so if we're going to be ministers of truth and, and justice and peace, when we vote, yes, we should still vote to protect the unborn, but also to protect single moms, to promote things like adoption, to care for all involved. And I don't believe casting a ballot is enough. I don't believe as Christians that we can cast a ballot and say, I've done my, my, my justice duty, right? See, we need to roll up our sleeves and actually love our neighbors, to be in relationship with people that are hurting, that are going through situations where they're contemplating things like abortions. And so we have this wonderful opportunity with the program of Safe Families to help uh, perhaps younger moms or moms who are in times of need, help them with their children. Now I know that's after birth, but I gotta think that if we begin to minister and to help people who are in times of crisis, they will tell others who are in times of crisis, hey, You don't have to take this one pathway out. You don't have to take the kind of the ultimate uh, abortion pathway out. You can take life because there's a church that'll help you, that'll support you. I I receive support in my time of need, and they might be encouraged to then keep their baby and, 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 and walk forward in hope. And so I think there are ways that we as a church can be ministering justice and peace in the world, still holding to the truth, to what is true about the unborn, and yet at the same time, beating our swords into plowshares and turning our spears into pruning hooks. So if you're wavering over thinking about the the Safe Families program, um, there are lots of ways to help out with that program. You don't have to be a host family. You can be like a family friend. I'd encourage you to fill out the application just so that you can be a part of the program. We just released this discipleship pathway and talked about it, and the end part is about developing relationships and changing lives, right? We want to see lives changed by Christ. I can't think of a better way than to help a family in time of crisis. And so we as the church begin to bring justice and peace into the world, but this won't be easy. And I'm going to briefly touch on the second half of the chapter, that God promises a day of justice and peace, but today he calls us to obedience and faith. In the second half of chapter 4, Micah does two things. He calls people to obey, to have faith. Verse 6 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. And so the exiles, these people that are about to go into exile, they're being challenged to believe that God's going to heal your wounds. He's going to restore you. And is that any different than what we're called to believe today? We're called to place our faith in the Messiah who came and did heal the lame and the blind and restore people's wounds and to ultimately heal them of their sins. And that's what you and I are called to. And in verse 10, Micah calls the people, he says, you have to leave the city You don't get a stay. You have to go to Babylon, but there you will be rescued. Sometimes we have to do hard things, right? We have to obey, and it it puts us at risk, us at risk of uncomfortableness and and damage. Corey Tenboom, she was sent to a concentration camp for helping Jews escape the Nazis. She said this. She said, the safest place is in the center of God's will. 
The safest place is in the center of God's will. See, Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to go into exile. They're going to go to Babylon, but they will overcome because they are in the center of God's will. And that's what he calls us to. The safest place for us is in the center of God's will. It might not be easy. It might not be comfortable, but it's the safest place. Obedience and faith aren't easy, but they're possible when we stop looking at ourselves and begin to look at Jesus Christ, our Savior. And remember that Jesus took a spear in the side, right? He took a spear in the side that pierced him so that the cross, a symbol of death, could become a symbol of life. It's by his blood that instruments of war are turned into instruments of life. It's by his blood that warriors are turned into peacemakers. It's by his blood that you and I can lay down our hostility towards each other or, or the world, and we can just walk forward in faith knowing the peace of God. See, God promises a day of justice and peace, but today he calls us to obedience and faith. As a church, we are called to be ministers of justice and peace. And so we want to think about how we can do that and things like safe families, but I also want us to be challenged personally. See, if you're at war with someone or over something, I want you to, challenge, I want you to think about how can, how can we, how can I turn my sword into a plowshare? How can I turn my spear into a pruning hook? Instead of furthering the conflict, how can I create justice and peace? How can I use what I have against someone to be for someone? And I don't know the answer to this, but you just need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you forward. God promises a day of justice and peace, but today he calls us to obedience and faith. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for peace. Thank you for that final day, the last days. Thank you that we're in them through Christ Jesus. Help us to be faithful. Help us to trust him. Help us to bring an end to conflict. Help us to create peace. In Jesus' name, amen.